America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? Okay. Present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Just a note before we begin, we recorded this episode several weeks ago prior to the beginning of Russia's massive military operation, its war in Ukraine. So most of the discussion uh, reflects a situation that does not include the war, but does include the buildup prior to the war. We have also added a short question uh, and answer with Eleonora at the very end, reflecting the current situation as of early March. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Oda Oliker, speaking to you from the Crisis Group offices in Brussels, where I am physically and in person joined by... And I'm Hugh Pope, your co-host. After two years of remote recordings, it is a remarkable feeling to be doing our first podcast with someone physically present in the same room. Wonderful. And this week, we are going to be talking about the very complicated and always interesting relationship between Turkey and Russia. It's almost always a time of mounting tensions throughout Europe and its wider neighborhood these days, and Turkey and Russia are almost always in the middle of it. Over the past several centuries, the relationship between Turkey and Russia has veered from hostility to close collaboration, sometimes, confusingly, both at the same time. In fact, if I've counted right, Turks and Russians have fought each other in over 25 wars. Even today, they find themselves landing on the opposite sides of conflicts, for instance, in Syria and Libya. Yet, at the same time, both have assiduously cultivated economic and diplomatic ties, often preferring to accommodate each other rather than challenge their respective spheres of influence. Still, competitive collaboration has not been easygoing all the time. Jovial exchanges between President Putin of Russia and President Erdogan of Turkey have been punctuated by serious tensions, including the apparently accidental Turkish downing of a Russian warplane in 2015. Joining us this week to untangle the relationship between Moscow and Ankara is, and joining us in person here in the in our offices, it's tremendously exciting, is Eleonora Tafura Ambrosetti. Eleonora is a researcher at Milan's Institute for International Political Studies, ISPI, which is Italy's leading think tank on international affairs. Her work focuses on Russia, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. But she has long had a particular interest in Russian-Turkish relations and how these two countries use soft power as part of their foreign policies, including towards one another. She has also lived in and worked all around the world, in London and St. Petersburg, in Brussels, in Barcelona, in Ankara, where she was the Marie Curie Fellow at the Middle East Technical University, researching exactly these sorts of issues. So, Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us and for coming here in person. Thank you. My pleasure. So... Actually, let's start with the soft power. Do Turkey and Russia use their soft power with one another and with what kinds of effects? I mean, we talk a lot about the relationships between Putin and Erdogan, but that's not soft power. That's, you know, kind of that great power leaders uh, making deals. But are they trying to influence one another's populations? I think actually when it comes to Putin, it does have his own soft power in Turkey. That's because Turkey has this uh, sort of fascination for uh, very strong rulers and uh, Putin is exactly identified as, uh, you know, a very strong man, uh, having a clear idea 
of uh, what's best for his country and fighting against the West. And given the widespread anti-Western sentiment in Turkey, uh, Putin actually has a lot of soft power, I would say. But then again, the soft power, I think... uh, has different dimensions, including some very weird ones, I would say. Russian soft power in Turkey mainly uh, is based on women. (laughs) It's very uncomfortable to say, but this is true. There are a lot of, um, I think it's uh, the last number when I checked was uh, around 40,000 Russian wives in Turkey. And uh, that gives Russia a lot of... uh, soft power. Are these predominantly women of Muslim background or of Christian background? Absolutely not. They're not Muslim. They're Orthodox Russian women that uh, come actually... After the fall of the Soviet Union, a lot of uh, women uh, came, also unfortunately prostitutes. There is a word in Turkish, to like a formal word to say prostitute, this is Natasha. Mm-hmm. But then uh, the flow didn't stop. And uh, one interesting thing is that women, to some extent, were also instrumentalized by the Kremlin during the crisis in 2015. So roughly 2,000 women went back to Russia and then returned to Turkey when the crisis was over. So I think it's an understudied phenomenon that deserves um, attention, I would say. Also, one thing, of course, that I have already mentioned and that makes uh, Russia attractive to many Turks is the fact that Russia is perceived as standing against the West. And given the fact that Turkey is drifting away from Europe and is having a troubled relationship with the US as well, this is uh, kind of uh, appealing to many. While we're talking about these under-the-radar perceptions, or soft power, I still remember when Russian gas first arrived in Istanbul in 1989. Suddenly, we lost air pollution. That was a huge, life-changing improvement for the city. And of course, there's a lot more going on than just interpresidential relationships. There's an incredible amount of trade between the two sides, which is not often taken into account when we spend our time talking about all the conflicts. Can you give us an idea of how important these exchanges are relatively for the two countries? Of course, trade ties are important for both countries because uh, Turkey imports predominantly glass from, from, uh, from Russia, but Russia imports a lot of uh, agricultural products from Turkey. And I remember during the jet crisis in 2015, I was living in St. Petersburg, and I remember that the sanctions that Russia imposed on those products and uh, on those Turkish products drove the um, prices very, very high. So we would go to the arena, to the market and uh, find the price of tomatoes had suddenly skyrocketed and uh, people weren't really uh, able to afford them anymore. In the summers, I live in a little village in southern Turkey. Farmers were ruined by that. It made a big impression. The farmers were ruined. Also, there were no tourists because they were blocked from going to the country. But, you know, I think there is interdependence, of course, but at the same time, qualitatively, these products are different because, of course, if you're talking about tomatoes, yes, it's uh, of course, they're important, but you can find ways to smuggle Turkish products in from other countries as well, like transit countries. Also, uh, you can find different sources 
But when it comes to gas, it's qualitatively more important. So I would say uh, this um, makes Turkey more vulnerable and more exposed uh, to any crisis that it has with Russia. So a few years ago, I was in Ankara doing interviews and a Turkish official said to me, you Americans, you know, I don't know the extent to which I represent America or not is open, but he did say, you, you Americans, you claim that you want a relationship with Russia where you cooperate where you can and you continue to disagree where you don't and compete where it's necessary. You keep saying that's what you want. That the relationship that we have with Russia is that relationship. This is what it looks like. This is what cooperating where you can, competing where you need to looks like. Do you agree with that? And why why are Turkey and Russia able to do it where the United States and Russia are not? Well, I think Turkey's foreign policy has grown more assertive and but also much more pragmatic than it was in the first decade of the 2000s. And that's uh, basically because of uh, the EU anchor getting weaker and weaker. So in the first 10 years of the 2000s, Turkish foreign policy was defined as the poster child of Europeanization. And so values which were much more important than they are today. Today, I believe uh, Turkey is more prone to collaborating with Russia because they speak the same language, the language of interest. And apart from these big grievances that they have with the West, I think they're able to accommodate each other's national insecurities and interests. So that is why this relationship is working, despite the, the differences. When it comes to the U.S., uh, I don't know, that's a much bigger question. One could say because the U.S. and Russia are still systemic rivals, and uh, and I would agree with that. But also let's not forget that Turkey and Russia have been enemies for centuries, right? So to be honest, I don't know. It's very interesting. And uh, it seems to me that every time something happens where Turkey and Russia, in fact, have different interests, for instance, in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict when it reignited and Turkey was backing Azerbaijan and Russia was mediating, but also had an alliance commitment to Armenia, there's this... um, cacophony of voices saying, okay, this is going to break the Russian-Turkish relationship. And it never does. Is there something that could break the Russian-Turkish relationship or the mutual interest in cooperating were possible enough to overcome any conflicts where they arise? For the time being, it looks like, and not just in Nagorno-Karabakh, but also uh, we saw it in Libya. In Libya, I think it was even more dramatic, right? Because Turkey supported the GNA, while Russia mainly supported General Haftar. So in Nagorno-Karabakh, I think uh, the a compromise was found because Russia, on the one hand, didn't want to uh, give Turkey too much prominence in the diplomatic uh, process uh, because at the end of today. It's Russia's backyard, right? I mean, uh, so it wasn't very keen on on granting too much importance to Turkey. On the other hand, it had to recognize its role, uh, especially due to the uh, to the military victory of Azerbaijan, uh, thanks also to Turkey's support. So I think 
relatively good compromise was found and uh, the same in Libya. In Libya, the situation is much different. Also, it's different, the sort of uh, balance of power. And I think it benefits Turkey more than Russia. But then again, the willingness, I believe, to find a compromise and the fact that there are so many crises that involve both countries, then it makes cooperation and dialogue much easier compared to other countries. You've talked about soft power. You've talked about interests. What about the role of the personalities of these two very strong presidents? Is that something people should be paying a lot of attention to, or is it overstated? Well, there are some commonalities that are also very interesting to study. So I wouldn't say this factor doesn't play any role. It does. First of all, both countries are going through a democratic involution. In the case of Turkey, this was much faster. I remember when I arrived in Turkey in 2014 and when I left in uh, 2017, at the end of 2017, it was a radically different country. And that was so fast. In Russia, this uh, process, unfortunately, has been going on since longer. And also, it's just uh, not that fast. It's a longer trend. And the both regimes are turning increasingly more and more personalistic. So this is a very important factor, I would say. And the leaders uh, have a good working relationship. I wouldn't say it's, a, you know, like uh, the best friend forever. It's not she, <laughs> but it's not Lukashenko either. I would say they, they get along together. Also, I think, as I said, they understand each other's insecurities. I think this is a crucial point. It's not only about national insecurities, the Kurds or NATO for Russia. This is also about personal survival. Both of them want to survive and both Putin and and Erdogan would do anything to survive and they know and they respect that. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and Hugh and I are talking to Eleonora Tafuro and Rossetti about Russo-Turkish relations. So, Eleonora, Russia has uh, basically decided that it doesn't really want to talk to the European Union. Uh, It's willing to talk to member states one-on-one, but efforts by the European Union to engage as such have generally been rebuffed. Turkey has its own very complicated relationship with the European Union. Is this something that you see Russia and Turkey seeing eye to eye on? uh, Or is there potential for tension because of the way that the two countries relate to the EU? So obviously, they have a different relationship uh, with the EU because Russia and the EU were strategic partners while Turkey was a candidate member. So of course, the degree of interaction was much higher in the case of Turkey. But there is this big frustration that they do share. In the case of Turkey, this was really showing dramatically after Cyprus entered in the EU. And Turkey felt it was fooled by the EU because really Ankara really helped to um, 
try to find a, a solution to the Cyprus crisis. And when it saw that its efforts weren't rewarded and the Republic of Cyprus entered in the EU without uh, having a political solution, then it started really growing this discontent. And the discontent uh, is obviously bigger today because uh, of all of the tensions that uh, Ankara has with Brussels. With Russia, it's, it's I wouldn't say it's the same, obviously, but there is the same frustration. And the difference, I would say, is that Russia has this attitude to talk bilaterally with the crucial member states. Also, there is this sort of hierarchy in the EU. And Germany is obviously the the most important country that uh, Russia and Turkey want to speak to. But I believe Turkey has uh, still, it it still holds uh, Brussels in much higher consideration than Russia does. So I would say this is the difference. And the commonality is, of course, the frustration. It is there. It is a frustration that is uh, real, but it's also a frustration that is instrumentalized for domestic purposes. So there is this sort of construction of the external enemy. I know this word is probably a bit too strong, but it really uh, gives you the idea of how the EU is sometimes used in the domestic uh, discourse by both uh, Erdogan and Putin. One of the things that will certainly test these relationships between Russia, Turkey and the EU is what's happening in Ukraine. We are recording in late January and anything could happen before we actually publish this podcast. But do you think that there will be competition between Russia and the EU for Turkey's goodwill as tensions escalate in Ukraine? Or do you think Turkey will sit on the fence exactly in the middle? How do you think this is all going to play out in that triangle? Well, Turkey is trying to act very mindfully uh, when it comes to Ukraine because it has a good relationship with Kyiv. It does provide Ukraine with uh, weapons. And of course, it also has a very uh, strong attention to the Tatar question because of obvious uh, religious and uh, cultural affinities. So it feels like it has to defend Crimean Tatars uh, against the uh, mistreatment by, by Russian authorities. But at the same time, I don't think Ankara would risk its uh, relationship with Moscow over Ukraine because at the end of the day, Moscow is still a much bigger priority than than Ukraine is. Erdogan warned, let's say, Russia against uh, invading again Ukraine. And it depends. Sometimes it uses a very bold language, but it does it especially sometimes to bother Russia. This is something that... um, Russia does with the Armenian genocide and uh, the Armenian question in general. Ukraine and Armenia are used by Turkey and Russia also in the bilateral relation between the two countries because, you know, uh, they know it's a sensitive issue and they know how, how to use it to bother the other country. So far, we've been painting a portrait of a fairly collaborative relationship between Russia and Turkey. Why would they want to risk bad feeling like this, stirring up issues that are some of the most irritating for the other party? How exactly does this work in practice? Because, as Olio was saying at the beginning, this is a rather complex relationship that involves competition as well. Uh, In fact, one of the 
many <laughs> phrases that have been uh, used to describe uh, the relationship is cooperative competition. And when the competition happens, sometimes Turkey uses Ukraine to piss Russia off and Russia uses Armenia to bother Turkey. For instance, after the jet crisis, I remember Putin gave a very, very emotional interview condemning Turkey for the Armenian genocide, which of course Turkey doesn't recognize. It doesn't even want the word genocide to be used. So, of course, those bold words bothered Turkey and they had quite a lot of uh, coverage in the, the Turkish media. Can we uh, shift focus to Central Asia? I remember uh, when the Soviet Union first dissolved, there was a lot of talk about Turkey taking a leading role with the Central Asian countries. And while there was a lot of business and certainly a lot of construction business, a lot of Turkish construction companies are very, very active in Central Asia, it never quite developed into a crucial foreign policy uh, vector for Turkey or for the Central Asian countries for that matter. And more recently, we've been hearing again about a growing Turkish role in Central Asia. So what's going on and is it going to happen now? So after the fall of the Soviet Union, Turkey had very, very big ambitions uh, to behave like the big brother of uh, the new Central Asian republics, uh, the Abi, let's mm -hmm. say, the, the older brother. And It never really abandoned Central Asia during these decades. But of course, it realized that in the end, Russia and then China are the major external actors in, in Central Asia. So Turkey does occupy a niche role, I would say, a, a strong one, and it's getting stronger, but it's still a niche. The Engagement is, of course, at the state level, but also a lot of enterprises and schools, I would say, are a very strong uh, source of influence for Turkey and a source of soft power as well, especially in Kyrgyzstan, but, you know, in uh, Kazakhstan as well. The strong asset that is like the similarities in, in language and culture, this uh, Turkic identity, is also a liability, I would say, because on the one hand, Central Asian republics, of course, the ones that share the Turkic identity. So let's uh, take Tajikistan out of the picture. They have, they, they grew fond of this narrative also because they want to have, let's say, a, a clear, separate identity from the former colonizer from Russia. But at the same time, they're also very jealous of their own national identity. So they're careful not to buy too much into this. So there's always uh, this balance between uh, the different vectors in the region. The Organization of Turkic-speaking uh, countries. This is a, a regional organization which is mainly led by Ankara. I think is growing in terms of influence and in terms of uh, driving regional cooperation, which is good, but at the same time, it showed its limitation uh, during the crisis in Kazakhstan. At the end of the day, Russia showed uh, that it's still the main actor, especially when it comes to security. And Turkey tried to 
describe itself as a mediator also through the organization. There was an extraordinary meeting of uh, foreign ministers and organization of the Turkic states. But uh, there was just a reiteration of the willingness of Turkey to act as a mediator, but nothing really concrete came out of the meeting. You've talked about Turkey's role being niche, yet you say it's growing. What impact has the recent role of Turkey had in Azerbaijan? When Azerbaijan first became independent in the early 1990s, it almost threw itself into Turkey's arms. Then Haider Aliyev, the father of the current president, Ilham Aliyev, came in, and he certainly didn't want to go down the same path of being close to Turkey. And yet now we see that his son is ready to invite President Erdogan to be next to him at military parades to celebrate Azerbaijani victories that were in part powered by Turkish weaponry and training. Isn't this far beyond a niche and is it growing? I realize Azerbaijan is in the Caucasus, not Central Asia, but it's still the same post-Soviet space, isn't it? It's it's also like a crucial member of the Turkic community or the Turkic family has Turkish uh, officials would frame it because this family thing is really uh, one of the crucial narratives that Ankara uses in Central Asia and in this South Caucasian country in Azerbaijan. But yeah, I mean, as you were mentioning, Azerbaijan has always had this sort of independent multivectoral foreign policy also due to the wealth coming from energy resources. But at the same time, has always had a very good relationship with Turkey. And I think it played it, its cards very well when uh, in, in this uh, 2020 war with Armenia. And Turkey's role was really crucial in ensuring a victory in, uh, in Azerbaijan. At the- but did it displace Russia at all? You know, Turkey tried to have a much bigger role in the diplomatic process in the ceasefire and it wanted to have something similar to the Astana talks in in Syria. But I think that made Russia a bit uncomfortable. So there was this sort of uh, granting Turkey a role with the peacekeepers and uh, some sort of uh, cooperation also in the, in the peace negotiation. But at the end of the day, it was mainly a Russia-brokered uh, ceasefire. And I think that Russia wanted to make it very clear that that was its sort of uh, of backyard. But I think the crisis gave, like the Turkey's role in the war, gave Ankara quite a lot of reputation boost in the region and in Central Asia as well, especially when it comes to its arms uh, industry. So these famous Bayraktar uh, drones are just legendary now. And uh, this is very interesting, for instance, when uh, we uh, saw this three-day war uh, between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Then Kyrgyzstan asked for Turkish help. Of course, we didn't see a very big role of Ankara. And, you know, in the end, Tajikistan had a victory over Kyrgyzstan. But Japarov was asking for Turkey's assistance because Turkey now has this very strong reputation of being a great arms uh, exporter. And I think this is thanks to the to its role in the in the Armenia-Azerbaijan war. Good advertising. You have a new paper out on Russian soft power in Africa. And I want to talk a little bit about Africa and whether or not there's Russo-Turkish cooperation or competition there. How would you describe the relationship on that continent? 
So both Turkey and Russia are rather like uh, new in the continent because, um, of course, Russia was there in uh, in the Soviet times during the Cold War. But it was a different story. Uh, while Turkey has becoming to expand its role uh, also very, very recently. When it comes to soft power, I would say their soft power is quite different and it appeals different targets, I would say. So let's start with the similarities. I think Turkey and Russia both boast of this uh, anti-Western image of being a player that understands the African governments because they both have their own grievances with the West and they are seen as not imperialistic, although both Turkey and Russia, of course, share an imperialistic past, but not in Africa. Yeah, so this is one strong soft power source that appeal um, both the African elites and the civil society. But when it comes to civil society, I would say Turkey has a quite bigger role in soft power because uh, of all the activities that are carried out by TICA, by the development agency or by Dianet, the presidency of uh, religious affairs, they have quite a lot of development projects and also they share the religious affinities with many countries. They deliver aid uh, packages, for instance, during religious holidays. And I remember when I was in Turkey during the Kurban Bayram, which is um, basically one of the most important religious holidays in uh, in Islam, there were a lot of uh, advertising uh, for donating a Kurban, uh, which is a ship, to Somalia or to other African countries. And these are development projects projects that receive a lot of attention and uh, gratitude from civil societies in in Africa, while Russia has more appeal towards certain political elites, also due to its uh, security role as a, as a security provider. Eleonora, we are sadly out of time. This has been such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for coming to Brussels and coming to our office to do this in person, but also coming to the table with some fascinating insights. Thank you. What's my pleasure. And folks, if you want to, and you should want to, keep up on Eleonora's work, you can follow her on Twitter, where she is, Eleonora Tafuro. You can also follow ISPI, is ISPI Online on Twitter, and their website is www.ispionline.it. And Eleonora's new paper is uh, indeed on uh, Russian soft power in Africa, and it is available on the website of the South African Institute of International Affairs. Thanks from me too, Eleonora. That was indeed fascinating. And if any of our listeners want to have a look at Crisis Group's work, do check out our website, www.crisisgroup.org. To track down what we've published on Turkey and Russia, just check out the Europe and Central Asia pages on the menu on the left-hand side of our website homepage. You should also follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Uh, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. And I'm at Olia Olaker. Crisis Group is also on Facebook and Instagram as at Crisis Group. If you've enjoyed this podcast or have any suggestions for us, do give us a shout out on Twitter or wherever you are online. You can also email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. 
And of course, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or a review as well. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe, Europod. You should check out some of the others. Big thanks to producer Bull Media and to our coordinator, Finn Dunbar-Johnson, who prepares us for each and every episode. But the biggest thanks, as always, are to you, our listeners. Uh, we are looking forward to chatting with you again in two weeks. But for now, goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. We recorded our conversation with Eleonora a few weeks ago, prior to the start of the major Russian offensive campaign against Ukraine, because, of course, this campaign has implications uh, for relations between Russia and Turkey. We asked Eleonora, well, what those might be. Here's her answer. So I think that Turkey's reaction to Russia's aggression in Ukraine uh, so far is quite telling about the necessity uh, that Turkey has to balance pragmatic interests and uh, also uh, navigate the asymmetries in its relationship with Moscow with the uh, willingness to play a much more active role, let's say, and to invest in its relationship with Ukraine, which Turkey considers a little bit as a theme to contain. Uh, Russia's role in the Black Sea. So we see on the one hand Turkey's uh, decision to close uh, the uh, Black Sea uh, straits that it controls, although this decision uh, was actually pretty hard to take uh, for Ankara. It took uh, quite a long time before uh, Ankara decided to give in to Zelensky's calls uh, to close the straits. But Ankara hasn't closed its skies to Russian planes, so it didn't uh, close its airspace to uh, Russian uh, planes as other uh, European countries did. So again, it has condemned uh, Russia's uh, aggression and the violation of sovereignty, but it hasn't joined the Western sanctions against Russia. So this is really one more element supporting the thesis that Turkey needs uh, this uh, sort of uh, cooperative uh, competition and a pragmatic relationship with Moscow. Uh, how the war is going to change this uh, sort of uh, balance is yet to be seen in the sense that we need to see whether the Kremlin will achieve success in its operation against the Ukraine. And uh, success means not only military success, but also the ability to survive the very heavy sanctions imposed on, on Russian economy. But if it succeeds in this, then I think uh, the... Uh, probably the credibility of NATO and the EU as, as powerful actors will uh, decrease in the eyes of Turkey. And this could probably make Turkey drift away even more from these organizations and probably align more with Moscow. So the um, NATO and EU failure to stop uh, Moscow in Ukraine uh, could also have repercussions when it comes to its relationship with Turkey. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.